Welcome to the Drive Phase Podcast, the best podcast for information on issues surrounding sports business in the Caribbean. On the Drive Phase, we have discussions with sport administrators, coaches, athletes, and various stakeholders in the sporting industry and examine their contribution to sports and entrepreneurship. Here's your host, Dalton Myers. In this episode, we look at sports law in the Caribbean. And here to discuss it is Dr. Jason Haynes, attorney at law and senior legal officer at the British High Commission in Barbados. Jason, welcome. Thank you very much, Dalton. I appreciate being here. You have been going the rounds in terms of discussing sports law and many aspects of law. Why this area? Why sports law? Well, I think it's a really interesting merger uh, that really is reflective of my own individual interest, which beyond law includes, of course, sport. And for me, growing up, sport was really and truly an integral part of growing up and the excitement and thrill that it brought. And so I felt that being a lawyer and the fact that law has really turned out to be disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for getting that out there. <laughs> I suppose, uh, you know, mainstream stream law is quite boring. So I think that if you were to merge both areas, you get a very interesting mix of things. And it certainly made life a lot more interesting having both areas interlocking. Uh, listen, you played cricket and even captain your club while at Durham University. Uh, how was that experience? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. In particular, sort of dealing with a diversity of uh, players from the subcontinent in particular, but also having players from Spain and Denmark which are traditionally not cricketing countries as such. I think for me that was really phenomenal because, of course, there was a certain expectation that if you came from the Caribbean that you would bring a certain skill set, a certain je ne sais quoi, and to be able to manifest that in the context of competitive cricket in the UK, I felt that was really good, actually. Mm. Well, Okay, so let's dive quickly into one of the reasons you are here. You, you have decided to co-author with Tyrone Marcos from Trinidad, a book entitled Commonwealth sports law. What was the vision behind this book? Well, I think Tyrone and I, when we met to discuss the possibility of writing the book, were concerned by the fact that for far too long, we have relied upon jurisprudence emanating from the metropolis. And mm-hmm. we felt that that is unfortunate, particularly for a region with a rich legal and sporting tradition. We have not really produced our own. And so oftentimes we saw matters being decided by reference to jurisprudence out of the UK or perhaps even the US and that was really untenable so we thought that given the fact that sports law has evolved within the Caribbean context that we could perhaps draw on the evolution that we've seen in the law as applied to sport and create this reference guide so that athletes uh, sport practitioners whether they are administrators or sort of spectators, journalists, whomever it might be who have an interest um, in sport could benefit from relying on the text. So that was really the thinking behind of it. So you addressed many different issues. The first one I'm going to be going into mm-hmm. is copyright. Right. And part of it in the book, you discuss the evolution of social media and copyright protection. Mm-hmm. Explain for the listeners some of the issues you mm-hmm. see arising here. Yeah, well, I mean, the athlete nowadays is a commodity. Mm-hmm. The athlete is no longer simply somebody who participates in a competition and does well. Nowadays, athletes are trying to monetize their skill set and, of course, their image, their persona. And in so doing, they have sought to seek so they have sought to, to, to obtain legal protection um, 
So that protection really and truly is through image rights protection. So many of them have entered into contractual arrangements with image rights companies, whereby for a commission, they've asked image rights companies to represent their interest. So if it is that um, a sponsor would like to use their image, then they would get into contact with the image rights company, enter into a contractual relationship, and the player would benefit significantly from the use of that particular image um, or the persona in, in, in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but increasingly what we've seen is the exploitation of players' images, particularly in the Caribbean where we're not very much um, in tune as to what the law is on this position. Um, and so we really have seen, you know, not, not only athletes, um, other athletes, you know, sort of making associations with, you know, popular athletes, but also sponsors. We've seen clubs, we've seen leagues, um, we've seen, um, you know, broadcasters not obtaining permission of uh, these prominent athletes and are using their image nonetheless. And that raises some very interesting legal questions. Um, but what we also have seen in a sort of the broadcasting realm is people more and more posting images, um, whether or not they are sort of short clips of mm-hmm. particular social events um, or sporting events, as the case may be, on to social media. And the interesting question has arisen as to, does that give rise to liability? Because naturally, you have not obtained permission and you are broadcasting or rebroadcasting somebody's um, intellectual property. So the law and disposition on this particular issue, you know, is, 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 is in a state of flux, I would say. Um, but we can discuss that slightly more. Yeah, uh, so let's get into that a little bit more. One of the things with social media now, Jason, that you see people using the different live features to broadcast. Mm-hmm. How much of that now is considered infringing on copyright issues and image rights and broadcast rights? Well, typically, if you are rebroadcasting for a commercial purpose, then the argument can be made that you're infringing the broadcast right that somebody has in the broadcasting question. Um, however, the, the difficulty is that oftentimes people do it out of a sense of loyalty, mm-hmm. of support. And so that question has not necessarily been ventilated before the courts. Or at least a definitive conclusion has not been arrived at as yet. Uh, but the general position, certainly out of Europe, is that if it is that you have broadcast somebody's uh, broadcast um, or rebroadcasted it without permission, even if it's for a social purpose, in the sense that you are sharing with your friends, then that in all likelihood could give rise to liability. But unfortunately, we in the Caribbean are not particularly litigious. So because of the lack of, of, of I suppose, an adversarial manner in which we deal with these disputes, mm-hmm. um, you tend not to have cases emanating from the region um, by which, of course, we could have a definitive position on these issues. But it is a real issue, less so in the Caribbean and perhaps in the metropolis, um, but I could definitely see those matters being litigated upon in the future. In the future, yeah, yeah. definitely. The, the, another thing that you discuss um, in, in, in your book is talking about sports rights holders for, uh, and, and ambush marketing. And you use a case study of the ICC Cricket World Cup in the region. Mm-hmm. Take us through that a little bit more. What are some of the liability issues, challenges that you recognize? Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, just to set the context of what exactly we mean by ambush marketing, mm-hmm. essentially, it is synonymous with parasitic marketing. So it's free riding. Sponsors in particular, which are not um, committed or 
entities, I would say, which are not committed to sponsoring, whether via platinum sponsorship or gold sponsorship or sponsorship period of particular events are nonetheless trying to take advantage of the goodwill in those events. And so that has given rise to some interesting challenges, particularly in Europe, where, for example, it might simply be a case where uh, spectators dressed in the particular brand of a company, which is a competing company from the official sponsor, um, come to the stadium and they would all sit together. Of course, the television cameras would be fixed upon them and it would be shown and there would be drawn an association between mm-hmm. those individuals in terms of how they are dressed and whether or not that entity has given official sponsorship of an event. And so it really dilutes the brand of the official sponsor and and so we've seen it evolve a lot, particularly in the Caribbean, where we've seen congratulatory messages being right. used a lot. Yes. Um, and, and the question has arisen as to whether or not that gives rise to liability. Now, the unfortunate um, position in the region is that we have not a sui generis area or what is called a, a, a sort of unique or distinct area um, called ambush marketing. In fact, when the matter has in, in the past been litigated in other jurisdictions, uh, courts have basically said that this is parasitic marketing. It is opportunistic, but there is nothing legally wrong as such with doing so. Really? Yeah. Um, so what has had to happen, certainly from a regional context, um, is a passage of legislation called sunset legislation, such as around Cricket World Cup Cricket 27, World Cup. when uh, the legislation would have spoken directly to that issue of ambush marketing and therefore prohibitions would have been placed on sponsors from usurping um, the, the, the authority vested in the official sponsors to use um, particular you know sort of imagery etc of the event in question um, but quite apart from that sunset legislation there has not been much activity in the region insofar as that is concerned and that is because of course one of the fundamental issues that has been mooted is the fact that you have to now draw a line between uh, somebody's right to, to have complete control as a sponsor of a particular event and other people's right um, of freedom of expression. So you have a right to express yourself and what form of expression is that of marketing. So your marketing could be um, very robust, uh, but it doesn't necessarily cross a threshold of being an um, infringement of a particular right in question. Fair enough. But, but, but let's then talk about, jumping there quickly, the IOC sets strict laws, rules and regulations surrounding the the rings, yes. the games itself. Yes. And we have to abide by those. Right. So what then prevents us mm-hmm. in the region from mm-hmm. creating similar laws, right. save and accept sunset legislations which expire after an event? Mm-hmm. What then you know prevents us from, from doing that? Well, actually, in principle, we are not prevented as such because trademark legislation actually allows you as an entity, a sponsor, as the case may be, to register your trademarks. So, for example, the IOC's trademarks are registered as trademarks. And so any use of them without the permission of the IOC is prohibited. So if it is that an entity has registered its trademark in Jamaica or throughout the Caribbean and that trademark is used without the permission of that entity by another entity um, perhaps in the same legal field or the same sporting field as the case may be then you can in fact bring an action for trademark infringement but the challenge with ambush marketing is that 
ambushers are aware of this and so they are not going to be as bold faced to use the marks the registered marks of these other entities they try to do things very surreptitiously um, and in so doing uh, it, 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 it sort of blurs the line between what's morally and legally right and, and what's wrong mm-hmm. and because our law doesn't provide a definitive answer as to exactly what the position is certain challenges arise there all right, uh, talking about IOC, so Article 40, which speaks to the advertising and marketing um, regulations, etc. Mm-hmm. Th- that is now being challenged, mm-hmm. isn't it? Certainly yes. in Germany, we have seen one case. What's your take on, on that? All right. I mean, just to give some context as to that particular ruling. So the International Olympic Committee, in conjunction with the National Olympic Committee of Germany, um, have entered into an arrangement contractually whereby... As part of the IOC's regulations, Article 40.3, I think, mm-hmm. uh, if it is that the Olympic Games are taking place, uh, individuals who are participating in those games ought not to have any personal endorsements during the course of the Games, but also nine days prior to prior and, and, and three days after the closing mm-hmm. event. And so a lot of athletes have in recent past been arguing that that restricts their ability to monetize upon personal endorsements. Mm-hmm. And the matter was brought to the attention of the Bundeskartelamp, which is sort of the anti-competition um, sort of commission in Germany mm-hmm. to investigate what in, in essence was an issue of ab- abuse of dominant position. And so when the investigation was completed, the conclusion was arrived at that this provision as currently drafted or drafted then uh, violated uh, EU laws regarding competition law, which expressly provide um, that an entity such as the IOC or the German Olympic Committee, um, which has a dominant position in the market, ought not mm-hmm. to abuse its position of dominance. So uh, the compromise that has been come to, specifically in the context of Germany, is that uh, players are now allowed to actually have um, some degree of personal endorsements, including congratulatory messages, and that if disputes were to arise as to the use of their image in personal endorsements, um, even around the Olympic Games, uh, those can't be resolved by arbitration. They have to be resolved by national courts within uh, Germany. And so that is an interesting dynamic because it now perhaps creates an avenue for other jurisdictions to equally argue that our um, unfair competition rules are being infringed as a result of these provisions which exist in uh, the IOC's regulations. Jason, I wasn't going to go into it too much just yet, but you're right. Isn't that then a concern? Because when you're saying, okay, you have to deal with these things at the national courts, not not arbitration Mm -hmm. in Germany. But then the rest of the world is saying, okay, cool. Well, you know, actually you're infringing on our rights also. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's an interesting dynamic and certainly something that um, Tyrone and myself have in brief spoken about. I mean, we haven't gotten into much um, serious discussion about the issue because I think it will evolve in future, right. certainly. Um, but I think a strong argument can be made that... Um, the similar approach continents in Germany should be applicable throughout the world because naturally athletes from throughout the world are affected mm-hmm. by this provision. And if it is that it's being relaxed in Germany, I think it's only fair that the same approach applies in other jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So it might be that that might be in fact something that in future you would see litigated <laughs> yeah. upon the Caribbean. And who knows, I may be one of the litigators. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to uh, 
uh, Jason Haynes, uh, who is an author. He's also attorney at law and solicitor in St. Vincent and the Grenadines and attorney at law in Barbados. And we're discussing sport law. All right. So there is one that we have been discussing, civil liability in sport. And I ask you before the start of the show, if, if, if I am driving my car on a public road and a cricket game is going on and they hit the ball and break my car glass, should I then not be compensated by the organizers of the event or the, the athlete who, who hit the ball and break my car glass? Always a contentious issue in the Caribbean <laughs> because I certainly remember playing in, in, in streets and in roads in, in St. Vincent yeah. all through the summer um, vacations that we would tend to have. And of course, in so doing, having hit people's um, cars or broken people's windows, etc. And I always was curious as to exactly what the legal position would be. And now, of course, having the opportunity to write a text. I can actually provide a definitive answer to what the, an- the conclusion is. And the answer is there's no liability. Now, generally speaking, if that had taken place... So I have to place, fix my own car. Oh, yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, but yes, that's a reality. Um, so sports organizers, um, you know, players themselves, in principle can be liable if they've acted carelessly and has co- have caused injury as a result, mm-hmm. um, whether it's physical injury or structural injury, etc. But in, in a context where, for example, a competitive sport is, is going on and um, a ball is hit and the car is struck, etc., there's no liability because the law recognizes the public interest involved in a socially, um, a, 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 an activity such as sport, which has good social utility. So it has actually recognized that because of the social utility of sport, which outweighs any other, other factor, um, then there should not be liability in those cases. So what then does public liability insurance mm. for these events cover? Well, typically, uh, well, you know insurance folk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't suspect that um, yeah. insurance folk would agree to, to, to having they, uh, they yeah, coverage of, of those particular <laughs> instances. <laughs> I, I want to take you then from the, we were talking about the IOC to the IWF and yes. You know, in the Caribbean, we, we love our track and field, uh, certainly in Jamaica, I know that. Uh, but, but right across the region. Now, we have new eligibility rules mm-hmm. that the IWF has set up, and you've discussed this, uh, ventilated a little bit for us in terms of the impact for athletes in the region. Yeah, well, the IEF um, has seen in, in the recent past almost an explosion of players who were transferring from different jurisdictions, mm-hmm. gaining their citizenship or residence, as the case may be, um, and, and going to other jurisdictions uh, to participate and represent those other countries. Um, there has been an argument that that, of course, robs the, 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 those countries from which they come um, of valuable talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jamaica has been one of those countries which is actually an exporter of athletes. In fact, in previous Olympics, we've actually seen a number of Jamaicans representing countries as far as the, in the Middle East. And right. so the IAAF has gotten hold on this particular issue and it has instructed through its um, changing of its rules um, that in order to qualify, players must meet a certain threshold, usually um, around two or three years mm-hmm. um, of, of, of being in that particular jurisdiction and actually having some close connection to that particular jurisdiction to which they now um, claim allegiance. Um, and I think that's necessary because I think for far too long, well, 
I think this is perhaps debatable. Mm. All right, I, I I wouldn't probably say necessary, but it's it's debatable in, in the sense that people want to earn a living as athletes, understandably. Um, and the reality is, in jurisdictions such as the Caribbean, we don't have as many opportunities for athletes who are perhaps not the best. Okay. And those athletes, in principle, would want to have the opportunity to represent other jurisdictions where they might be the best in those jurisdictions and can actually earn a living. Because if you, as an athlete, are specialized, you would want to apply your trade. But if you're not right. being able to represent your country at the very highest levels, then perhaps you would seek out opportunities elsewhere. And so I think this is sort of the argument used by these athletes as to why they have shifted in terms of their nationality or residence or citizenship mm-hmm. and gone to other jurisdictions. But at the same time, we have to recognize that schools, especially in Jamaica, invest quite considerably and the government um, and other private entities in buttressing these athletes' talents by creating the opportunities. But isn't it part of restriction of trade, though, um, Jason? Excellent, excellent point, excellent question. (laughs) No, (laughs) I think the, the legal position is for a restriction such as that, to, to, to cross the threshold of legality, it must serve a legitimate interest. And the argument, at least on the part of the IAWF, is that th- there needs to be some form of good governance in terms of how people actually are able to represent different countries. Okay. So there must be structure and, uh, and, and there must be um, sort of, sort of a, a defensible manner by which these decisions are made as to who represents which country. Um, but also, the threshold has to be passed as to whether or not it is proportionate, this rule. And I think it actually strikes a good balance because it's not as if the, the athletes are completely prohibited or precluded from um, representing other jurisdictions. It is just that a timeline has been set, which in principle, is reasonable. Um, if you have to spend a couple of years being acclimatized to a particular jurisdiction in order to then represent that jurisdiction, I think that is a proportionate response in the circumstances. Well, it depends, though, because in the sense that if, and, and there are different levels of it, right? Certainly because if, if one, you you, weren't, you don't have any parents, grandparents, etc., mm-hmm. then that's when the timeline becomes a little longer. If you, mm-hmm. if, you know, if you have a grandmother, grandfather, etc., there, right. there are more. So, yeah. so, mm-hmm. so different persons yeah. may be able to get to compete for their new country at different times. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, the same issue arises now in the context of cricket. I mean, this, a number of Bajans, for example, um, you know, Jofra Archer. Uh, recently, uh, he had gotten his his British citizenship, and the question arose as to whether or not he should now represent the the English cricket team in the World Cup. But you saw, uh, you know, obviously the sentiments expressed uh-huh. by English cricketers that it's morally unfair, for example, to simply have this athlete move from one jurisdiction to another and automatically be enlisted because, of course, he's more talented than perhaps these other individuals. So there are moral and legal issues which arise in that context. There, there are a lot of issues that you you raise several um, in the Commonwealth Caribbean sports law. One of them that I want to discuss now relates to anti-doping. Mm-hmm. And we have seen in the Caribbean several issues relating to what is considered violation of the WADA code mm-hmm. for who have strict liability. Mm-hmm. Uh, say strict liability. So talk to us a little bit about what is strict liability. Right. What are some of the issues surrounding anti-doping in the in the Caribbean or well, for Caribbean athletes? Excellent. Yeah. Um 
Well, the issue of strict liability is simply that once an athlete has been found with uh, certain banned substances in his system called, uh, in principle, uh, an adverse analytical finding has been returned, that athlete will be banned, uh, whether provisionally, if it's a non-specified substance, or uh, in a mandatory sense, um, if it's a specified substance. Mm-hmm. Um, no. The, the, the challenge with this approach of strict liability is that the anti-doping organization does not have to establish intent or fault or negligence on the path of the athlete. So long as the athlete has been found with a banned substance, that athlete would be subject to sanctions. Now, the, the, the interesting dynamic, however, is that although in principle those sanctions would be imposed there can be a reduction or elimination of sanctions yes. if the circumstances are such that, that um, the athlete could benefit from from those um, sort of mitigating factors. Um, so in the regional context, quite a few of our athletes have gotten in the mix mm-hmm. um, of, of doping. I mean, we, we've got in Jamaica, Simone Forbes, um, Sharon Simpson, Safa Powell, Travis Mickle, um, and quite a few others, in fact, recently Nesta Carter. Mm-hmm. Um, and some very interesting questions have arisen, particularly in terms of privacy of athletes. Um, we've seen Andrew Russell matter as well, where he was banned as a result of a whereabouts violation. violation. And, mm-hmm. and that raised some very interesting questions regarding his privacy and the fact that it is particularly onerous to expect an athlete in advance um, of participating in events to actually update his information for three months in advance. I mean, that, that is incredible. We don't even do that as regular individuals on a day-to-day basis. So why is it that the expectation is that athletes would be able to do that? So is it invasion of privacy or is it just ensuring you cash drug sheets? Well, yes. And I think that's, that's where the interesting <laughs> dynamic um, has, has fallen because, uh, you know, certainly WADA's position is that you know, we have to create a, a level playing field for our, all athletes. And in doing so, stringent requirements have to be put in place. And even though it causes individual unfairness in one or two cases, in the vast majority of instances, it creates an avenue whereby athletes can feel safe that they're competing um, with other athletes who have not cheated. Yeah. And so those rules exist in principle to ensure that level playing field, the spirit of the sport and the health of the athlete. Those are some of the justifications that have been used to actually enact those principles, those rules which exist. So I haven't been able to read the entire text of your, mm-hmm. your book, uh, just 24, less than 24 hours, and I've managed to go gone through some aspects of it. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I wonder, though, whether or not this book will pr- create a kind of a toolkit for athletes to understand w- what are some of the opportunities and avenues that are out there for them if these cases arise. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's very necessary. One of the challenges that we have in the region, uh, perhaps because of the lack of professionalism, is that a lot of our athletes are simply not aware as to what their rights and responsibilities are. So athletes may be very proficient at what they do, at track and field stars yeah. or cricketers, footballers, as the case may be. But when it comes to the integrities, like, you know, what should you expect in a contract? Athletes are simply unaware. And so increasingly, we've seen a number of agents, for example, coming from the metropolis and recruiting these uh, very vulnerable, I would say, athletes 
athletes in terms of their knowledge base. And them, for example, um, obtaining commissions in excess of 20%. No, in principle, agents ought not to be getting, certainly in the European context, much more than that. But we've seen our athletes sacrifice themselves and their futures on the altar of um, expediency, which is I want to get out of the difficult situations I'm facing, and so I will simply accept whatever is given to me. Mm-hmm. And that is a big challenge that we face in the Caribbean. And it's not specific just to athletes, entertainers as well. I mean, quite a few of my friends are amateur entertainers. They travel around the world um, here and there doing gigs. And they're faced with these contracts which contain very seriously invasive terms and conditions. And they simply are not aware as to the implications of these contracts. And they sign on to them and they're bound by them. Um, So I think in terms of knowledge, uh, this book is going to help considerably to buttress the understanding of athletes on many of the issues that um, arise from time to time, including contractual issues, their rights in terms of intellectual property, and of course, their obligations in respect of doping. Let me just draw your attention. I'm sure you know uh, arbitration. We're going to talk a little bit about arbitration. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest arbitrators Mm -hmm. is the... Court of Arbitration for Sports, okay. who have, they have been challenged um, a few times. Now, walk us through what that process is like. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is it a challenge for Caribbean athletes? Well, perhaps the biggest challenge for Caribbean athletes is the distance. The court is based in Lausanne, Switzerland. And as you might know, and I'm sure most people would appreciate, Switzerland is one of the most expensive places on earth. And as a result, many of our athletes have had to sacrifice appeals which they might otherwise have grounded simply because they can't afford the exorbitant costs associated with initiating arbitrations before the Court of Arbitration for Sports. Now, the question has been mooted as to whether or not the time is ripe for a regional Court of Arbitration for Sport to be created. But that in itself creates some very interesting dynamics and challenges, I would say, in terms of funding, in terms mm-hmm. of a suitable pool of arbitrators to deal with matters that arise from time to time. But also the issue of confidentiality and the issue of impartiality. That's one of the challenges in a small society such as ours, where the pool of arbitrators from which you can choose is very small. Uh, people know people and people have done cases for people. And so issues regarding conflict of interest mirrors from time to time. The Court of Arbitration Sport, I would say, has served the world quite well. In fact, their jurisprudence is now well developed um, and it's a good reference point and certainly a reference point that we've used in a book. But it's not Caribbean-centric. Much of their jurisprudence caters for a particular um, locale, which is, of course, the metropolis. And so what our argument is that although, for example, there is the availability of legal aid in certain instances, it is not as if that is widely available for Caribbean athletes. And as a result, many of our athletes simply um, don't appeal matters in which they could very well succeed, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the things you touched on is, is legal aid, which you can apply for. I mean, you don't necessarily will get it. Yeah. And incidentally, you have to pay. Mm-hmm. You have to pay to apply for the yes. legal aid. Yes. So really, that is a... <laughs> that's an impediment. <laughs> that's an impediment for, for, for the athlete. Yeah. And then you don't even know if you'll, if you'll really get it. And so, yeah. so those are some of the challenges for us in the Caribbean, yeah. sort of a Caribbean athlete, yeah. isn't it? And another thing, too, is that of diversity. Now, the truth is most of the arbitrators who are on the panel of arbitrators for the Code of Arbitration Sports are not of our orientation. They're not black. Mm-hmm. 
you know so in in that respect although in principle that shouldn't necessarily affect the outcome of a judgment we know that people's you know positions are, are prejudiced by their affiliation right. whether it is uh, professional affiliation or racial affiliation and I, I think that is on one of the main challenges of course with the code of arbitration sports 99% of the arbitrators are not reflective of the general populace of the world that it serves talking about uh, anti-doping anti uh, Dr. Emir Crown, a good friend of mine and I we have had this long running battle about whether or not anti-doping hearing uh, disciplinary hearing should be public or whether or not these should be private. What's your take on that one? <laughs> That's an interesting one because I know JADCO recently changed their rules That's correct. so as to preclude folk from entering and just simply observing as if it were, quote, matter. I think my position is generally doping matters are matters of public interest. And if a matter is one of public interest, then the public should have at least sight of some of the issues that arise in that context. Now, there are some matters which would invariably require some shielding of the athlete. And I would think, for example, a case where the athlete is intersexed and so you know, privacy issues in relation to testosterone levels. You don't want that being made available to the public. But I think generally speaking, in most of the other cases involving doping, they're pretty straightforward. And in any event, what we've seen from the Code of Arbitration for Sport is that they've published their judgments and folk are actually allowed in uh, to observe. And so um, in that context, I would say that um, there's no objection, I would say. To, right. to, to having the public because I think again doping in particular is a public issue but doping is a public issue but a disciplinary hearing don't necessarily have to be a public hearing since in your workplace your disciplinary hearing for you and I if we've ever been disciplined yeah. would be a private matter yeah. not even the judgment is made public yeah, I, I think, you know, that that's a rational argument, actually. <laughs> but I, I don't see anything objectionable, to be honest. Okay. I think that there are cases, and, and those cases would obviously be dependent upon their merit, where I can see, of course, uh, th there's a need for confidentiality. But I think, generally speaking, you know, most doping matters simply involve has or, the, has, or has not the athlete um, taken a banned substance and is the athlete um, in, in a sufficient position to qualify for a reduction in sanction. Mm -hmm. um, in, in that instance, I, I don't think that that requires any major degree of confidentiality. And, and then again, confidentiality yeah. deprives people like me who are academics and practitioners from benefiting from uh, the jurisprudence emanating from these tribunals. Fair enough. We'll, we'll have a, I'm sure we'll come back to this another time for another podcast because I certainly believe that it can be private hearing but the the decisions you know are made public uh, to some extent fair enough you know redacting whatever matters that need to be redacted mm -hmm. uh, because of time i have to shoot you a couple questions quickly mm -hmm. let's mm -hmm. talk about uh human rights issues castasemenia elevated level of testosterone all of those issues mm -hmm. coming up Talk to us about your view mm -hmm. on that. Well, I think as a matter of principle, legally and otherwise, if an athlete has elevated levels of endogenous hormones, in this particular instance, testosterone, you can't deprive that athlete 
of being able to participate at the very highest levels simply on the basis of those elevated levels, which are in any event not a fault of hers. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, could, I could see an instance where it is that the athlete has benefited from uh, taking a prohibited substance to increase the level of, um, how, uh, of, of testosterone as a basis for arguing, listen, let us exclude this athlete. But an athlete who naturally has high levels, I don't think that athlete should um, suffer um, simply because of something which is naturally occurring. Because we see in sport throughout that there are certain genetic predispositions, certain um, genetic advantages that athletes have, and those individuals are not precluded from participating. So we look at basketball, for example, your height, for example, is a natural advantage, um, advantage that um, is afforded you. Um, and no one speaks about that, generally speaking. Um, you go to Kenya, for example, and a number of the athletes there um, have benefited from um, training that would allow for uh, them to run very long distances because of the intake or the lower intake of, of oxygen and then them being able to um, use their oxygen levels very efficiently. On, on that basis, you, you can see, of course, that naturally uh, genetic and other factors do exist in sports. We, we can't turn a blind eye to them. So on that basis, I don't see a basis or a reason why um, the athlete should be exempted from participating or precluded, I should say, from participating on the basis of something which is naturally occurring. That's just a matter mm. of principle, to be honest. Final one for you, uh, Jason, because there's so many things we could be discussing. But do you think that you know there's a lack of requisite legal framework in the in the Caribbean to protect our athletes' interest and image? Yes, absolutely. I think that is one of the fundamental challenges that we have as a Caribbean people. We have not really monetized and commercialized and protected our athletes in the manner in which they ought to. Um, I, I know that in some jurisdictions, um, such as the Bailiwick of Guernsey, which is a crown dependency of um, Great Britain, they have actually enacted specific legislation providing for the registration of your image or your persona or some other indicia of who you are as an athlete. And that's probably the direction in which we should be going to afford athletes the greatest level of protection possible. But I don't think we are at the recognition phase just yet. I think we're still at that phase where we're trying to figure out exactly who we are in terms of a sport and people. And because of that, we've not really monetized any manner in which we should. But we're getting there, but certainly it requires a lot of education. Awesome. Jason Haynes, thank you very much. Listen, you can go to and get their book. It's Jason Haynes and Tyrone Marcos. And the book is Commonwealth Caribbean Sports Law. Jason, amazing talking to you. Thanks for stopping by. And thank you to our listeners. Thanks for joining us on this week's edition of The Drive Phase. Make sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Remember, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes as well. As always, go and tell a friend about the show so that they too can spread the word and they can get all this information about sports law. Feel free to send feedback, comments, or questions uh, on this about this episode or any episode. And send it to the drive phase at gmail.com. Or look us up on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter it is the drive phase GA. On Facebook is the drive phase. Remember our hashtag is TDP. Until next time, see you then.